0: Good morning and greetings, In Jesus' name, welcome you here, we're glad you're uh, here and uh, wanting to serve the Lord together collectively, especially if you're a visitor, welcome, we're glad you're here too. Okay, so this morning for a period of time here, I would like to talk about um, a particular part of prayer. We have... Uh, it's not uncommon, I should say, to have uh, topics, talks, sermons, whatever on the subject of prayer. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, Darren covered that a little as we looked at Jesus and some of his instances of praying. as I thought back, it hasn't been too long since Pete has had, was here and had a uh, a sermon on prayer, I remember. so it's not an uncommon not an un, it's not uncommon for us to talk about it, and that's proper. Um, prayer is certainly a fundamental part of Christian life. Um, I don't think you disagree with that. And yet, I, I find it's not uncommon for for Christians to admit that if um, if they could have a more meaningful prayer life, they would they would wish that could be. And I don't think that's that's um, that's wrong either. In fact, I think that's good in many ways to to desire a, a more communion, uh, a better communion with the Lord. And it's very interesting that the disciples, of all the things they could have asked Jesus to teach them to do, we have specific reference that he, they asked Jesus to teach them to pray. And uh, they said, you know, John taught his disciples to pray. You know, would you teach us to pray? And I've wondered already what the what the impetus was for that request. But I have a feeling that as they watched their, um, their um, leader pray observed that they said this man has a communion with the lord that we know nothing about i'm pretty sure that was the that was the impetus for that request i uh a while back uh, a man that i respect christian man that i work with in uh, in the seed business he was referring to a um, a meeting he was at just a it was a meeting Secular meeting of some sort, but um, at that meeting, the, the leader, one of the leaders there led in a prayer. And he said, that man was a Christian, because you could tell who, that he knew he, who he was talking to. And I thought that was an interesting, an interesting observation. Do we know who we're talking to? Well, enough on the preamble. I'd like to talk about something. You can turn to First Timothy a while if you wish. I would like to talk about something this morning. Uh, that pertains to prayer that I don't know I've ever heard, uh, expounded on before. I'm not saying that it hasn't been. I'm just saying that I don't remember, I don't remember ever hearing a topic on this particular subject. And, um, I am going to try to, to talk about it this morning and bring some clarity to it. And that might be foolish on my part, but I'm going to try. First Timothy chapter two. And let's go to verse 8. We're going to read verse 8, 9, and 10 right now. I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. I would like to discuss this morning, this verse nine, eight, rather, where it talks about lifting up holy hands. What does that mean? The impetus for this topic goes back a year or two when I was talking with one of you here in the congregation and you made the observation that we as Mennonites and a Baptist we make um, a pretty fair ado about verses nine and ten. That it's fairly important that women dress modestly, so on and so on, and that we don't make so much of an ado about uh, getting practical about lifting holy hands in prayer. And the question was, what do I make of that? I didn't know what to make of that because I had never considered that before, uh, but I thought it was a legitimate question. So let's, let's be honest about one thing, and, and this is not, this is not at all critical, but it is an honest observation that we as people tend to approach the scripture with a built-in bias. At least those of us that have grown up in Christian homes have sat under the sound of the gospel Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, have attended Bible schools, have attended uh meetings of different sorts where there's teaching and exposure to the word of god we end up because of uh because of that exposure because of that teaching we end up somewhat taking on the viewpoint of our teacher and that's not a bad thing necessarily in fact it's probably a good thing because if you and i had to every generation had to reinvent the wheel or rethink our things Uh, That could be somewhat burdensome too. So if we have good, solid, exemplary, living commentaries of how the Word of God should work and can work and does work, um, that's a good thing. That's not at all bad. However, let's also be honest that it's not uncommon for varying Christian denominations to have particular doctrines or practices that become unique and defining of the denomination. And I'll give you an example. Uh, if I just say the word Baptist, what do you think of? Well, I don't know what you think of, but I immediately think of somebody that makes a, a, a pretty great deal about the mode of baptism, and they're fairly patriotic. That's just two things that just immediately come to mind when I say that word. Uh, when I say Pentecostal, immediately I think of somebody that gets pretty excited in their worship service and believes... Uh, Pretty extensively in the speaking of tongues. If, uh, if you say Seventh day Adventist, I think immediately of somebody that makes quite an ado about the diet and has a, has a unique, um, theology when it comes to end times and Christ's return and that sort of thing. And no doubt when people hear the word Mennonite, they immediately have their thing that comes to mind. And we're quite known for taking a fairly radical, uh, approach to Scripture. In other words, we we believe that if the Bible says a thing, that we should we should if it if it doesn't make sense not to, we should take that fairly literally, and so thus we are we are known for some fairly literal observations. Probably one of the biggest is the literal observance of our what we call seven ordinances, which is included in them things like the Christian woman's veiling, feet washing, that sort of thing. There's just not many denominations that do that. So let's be honest about this. And that's not bad. It's just, it's just, it's just the way it is. So this morning, I would like to try to make an honest evaluation on verse 8. And let's see if we can reach a conclusion of exactly what Paul was teaching here in verse 8. And why it seems like he ties verse eight, nine, and ten together? It seems to me that these three verses somewhat go together. So, so is this an oversight? Are are we missing something here, or um, where where does where does where does does Scripture lead us? That's that's what I like to try to to get to this morning. So, it's always best, whenever or it's imperative, I should say, that whenever we're going to try to figure out what a verse says that we get the context of the verse. Because it is really easy to take a verse and just pull that out of its context and just run seven miles with it. And we don't want to do that. We, we want to make sure we know what the context is. So let's get context. So if we go back to chapter 1, and if you would take the time to read through chapter 1, I would say the context or the summary of chapter 1 is tied up in verses about 11 through 15. Paul is trying to impress Timothy with the glory and the gloriousness of the gospel of Jesus and how this gospel of Jesus was committed to he, Paul's trust. Then if you go to verses 18, 19, and 20, he says, this this gospel that was committed to my trust and, I'm, and that I'm a minister of, he said, I'm going to commit that to you as well, Timothy. So so it's now your responsibility along with mine to um, to present this gospel. If you go to verse 3 and 4 in chapter 1, he points out that it's pretty easy for the pure doctrine to get to get all sidetracked and uh, to start discussing endless genealogies and uh things that minister questions. In other words, he's he's pointing out he said, you know, Timothy, as you're preaching the gospel, be aware that it's pretty easy to pull a verse out of context and just run miles with it. Be careful not to do that. Now I'm I'm putting that in my own words, but he's basically saying sound doctrine is essential, it is fragile, it is easily defiled, and must be jealously guarded. And he said, if you need an example of that, just look at Hymenas and Alexander in verses 20. He said, these people here, they didn't do that, and I delivered them to Satan so they would learn not to blaspheme. So now we come into chapter 2. And remember now, Let's remember that the overriding theme is to guard sound doctrine. That that's what he's starting out with, and, and that that kind of that thread runs through the entire book of First Timothy. So, chapter two, verse one: I exhort, therefore, I exhort you, therefore, because I'm concerned about sound doctrine, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. For kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come to unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one Mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, to be testified in due time. Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle. I speak the truth in Christ and lie not. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. And then we come to these verses, which I already read, so I'll quit there. So, so let's, let's go back here to, to verse one. He says, because I'm concerned about sound doctrine, and it is my desire to see this preserved and not defiled, I want you to pray. Order number one is to pray. And he, then he goes into, uh, well he says for all men in, in verse one. And then as we move into uh, verse 2, he says, I want you specifically to pray for your civil leaders and those who you find yourself in subjection to. So let's back up here and and look at verses. Well, let's just look at verse 1 and 2 here just a little bit. When he says specifically that he wants us to pray for all men, that means all human beings, not just men, but men and women, whatever, that they that they should be saved. If you go over to verse 4, that's why. He says, I want all men to be saved. I want everyone on the face of the earth to be saved and come to the, to the knowledge of, of truth. So therefore, pray. Also in verse 2, when he says, pray for your rulers, etc., the qualification is again in verse 4, because I want all men to be saved. So, just a little side note here. The imperative is that as we pray for our kings and the, and the people that are in authority... We're specifically supposed to pray that we can lead a quiet and a peaceable life. Because he said this is conducive to uh, people being saved. And I'm going to quickly just run down a rabbit trail a little bit. Um, You sometimes hear this idea that it would be really good for the church if we we would suffer persecution. Because that would purge the church and boy that would separate the sheep from the goats and on and on. Um, I want you to be careful with that thought process. While that there may be some truth to that, I don't know that we have anywhere in the scripture that we're supposed to desire persecution. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, when they persecute you in one city, you flee to another. But we do have the the imperative here that we should pray for quiet and peaceable lives because God wants all men to be saved. Now, so how do we put this together? On one hand, persecution is so purging. On the other hand, God says, pray for peace so all men can be saved. Never forget that persecution is no fun. I think the reason we can speak so glibly about it is because we have never experienced it. It is not a cakewalk. And there has been, I believe there have been many people that have counted the cost and they have looked at what needed to be suffered and they said, I can't do it. That, that's just my observation. Now, there's much more to that discussion and we're also promised in the same word of God we're reading here this morning that everyone that lives godly should expect persecution. I'm not denying that. But never do we have that we should pray for persecution. Rather we should pray for peace and a quiet life. All right, so that's the bunny trail. I'm going to I'm going to leave that. Paul then goes on in verses 5 and 5 6 and 7 and he emphasizes that this faith it's just one. There's just one faith. And there's only one way to enter into this faith, and he said that's through Jesus. No doubt that day was the same as this day, and that is people would like to, to give us the idea that there are many religions, but they all lead to the same place. That's not true. It never was true, never will be true. There's one way and one way only. Again, this is imperative for the sound doctrine that he's talking about here that we, we talked about. He emphasizes in chapter 1. So now this brings us right up to um, verses 8, 9, and 10, which is where we would like to focus for the remainder of the morning. And that is somewhat of a new discussion, but it still relates to how to retain sound doctrine. So verse 8 has some specific instruction and verse 9 and 10 have some specific uh, instruction. The one verse is to men, the other one is specifically to women. And so let's look closely here at at what is being taught and see how these verses relate to each other. And then let's tear it apart, tear these verses apart and try to put them back together again and see if we can ascertain exactly what Paul is trying to teach here. So let's let's go to verse eight. He goes. I would therefore. So again, we have a therefore, and the therefore is always say look back and see what it's there for. In other words, so in light of the importance of prayer and retaining sound doctrine. So I've, I've I've laid out that prayer is so important in this retention of sound doctrine. So I would because of that reason, I want men everywhere to pray. And as I mentioned, this word men here. In opposition to the one in verse one, specifically means the male gender. Not, not it's not used in in the way of all human beings, but specifically men. So I would therefore that men, males, whatever, would pray everywhere. Okay. So what about this thing of praying everywhere? Well, there's there's perhaps two meanings we could um, we could arrive at on this on this thing of everywhere. The one meaning is. Perhaps he's, he's uh, pointing to the fact that we should be in an attitude of prayer or in prayer everywhere. Not just when we're in church or not just when we're in prayer meeting or not just when we're having formal prayer in our house, but everywhere. Everywhere. Be in an attitude of prayer. It also could mean that he's addressing this to men everywhere. Um, no matter whether you're in North America or whether you're in Mexico or South Africa or whatever. Um, everywhere this is addressed to men. Could mean either, and it, it maybe means both. Now let's stop and consider the word prayer here in this particular word, or pray. Um, the word pray in the Greek has at least four different um, words. In other words, when we read through our King James and we come across the word pray or prayer, there's at least four different Greek words. That the translators just translated pray in our Bibles. so let's let's consider what this particular Greek word means. The word here is a Greek word that's something like proyokamia, something like this, and the word means to pray to God specifically or probably more in a public setting. so the the impetus or the kind of the, the backdrop would be Praying in a in a public place such as church like this or something like that. Another word that we have that is um, translated pray is is deacesis. I think I'm saying these words right. And that word is more like a petition or a request or a supplication. In verse one of this chapter, it is translated supplication. So um, it, it has it's a stronger word such as beseeching or begging. Um, uh, a strong approach to in prayer, and then there's another one that is um, I guess i 'll quit trying to pronounce them all right it isn't helping much anyway, but anyway, in verse one it's translated intercessions, and this particular word means to confer with or to make a deal with. okay did you ever try making a deal with God? I couldn't help but think of uh, Abraham. It seemed like he was dealing a little bit with God there whenever he had his conversation about Lot and Sodom and so on. And I had to think of uh, Samuel, Hannah, and and with her son Samuel. It seemed like she dealt there a little bit too. She said, "If you give me this son, I'll lend him to you as long as he lives." So I don't know. I don't know what dealing with God specifically looks like. And I guess I would caution we wouldn't get overly radical with that. But I suppose that there's a place for that because. Um, we do have some example of that happening in Scripture. In chapter 4, verse 5, if you just flip over, and it says, For it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. That word prayer there is this particular word that means to to make a deal with or confer with God. All right. So the deduction is that we're, we're primarily talking about men, and we're primarily talking about public worship. So that we can we can... Verify from the from from the from the Greek words of this text. So the 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 next question is: Is this instruction here given in verse eight only to men, and does it mean to literally raise hands in prayer, or should it be understood more metaphorically, and the holy part be more emphasized rather than the literal raising of hands? All right. So let's consider that question for a little bit. So it is my observation, as far as I know and as far as I could could see as I looked at this, I don't find anywhere else in the scripture that we have actual instruction per se that we should actually lift our hands in prayer. However, we have ample instruction that it is imperative to be holy before God when you come before God in prayer. And I'm going to read you a medley of verses that verify this. Psalm 24, 3 and 4. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who should stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul into vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. Uh, clearly here, in this verse, we're not talking about going over to the basin and washing our hands before we pray. That's not, we get that. It's not what we're talking about. It's talking about having a pure heart. The next phrase indicates what that's referring to. In Psalm 66:18, it says, "If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me." Proverbs 15:29, "The Lord is far from the wicked, but he heareth the prayer of the righteous." Proverbs 28:9, "He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be an abomination." Mark 11:25, "And when ye stand praying, forgive, if ye have ought against any, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive your trespasses." So in other words, if we're praying with an attitude of forgiveness and ill will, you may as well forget praying. It's not going to work. And the last one I have here is James four three. It says, "Ye ask and ye receive not, because you ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts." Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Wherefore, whoever is a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Um, that word amiss in the Greek could be translated, or every other place in the New Testament is translated sick. Okay? Read it like that. Ye ask and receive, not because you're sick. You're sick. And why are you sick? Because you're an adulterer and adulteress with the world. That's why. And if you're going to do that, never mind. Your prayer won't be heard. Once your sure conclusion. If we expect to be heard of God, we must be meticulous about having our lives holy and unblemished. So I would just like to say this. This is a clue, all right? But I would be cautious, I would caution us not to um, not to run away with this either because never insist that a thing has to be repeated more than once in the in the word of God to make it legitimate. If that's the case, then we're doing plenty of things that are not legitimate because it's not more than mentioned more than once in, in the word of God. However, it is a clue. Of, of perhaps the um, of, of where Paul was going in these verses, I would say this too. There are some people that make that argument in First Corinthians 11 in relating to the, the Christian woman's veiling. However, there's one big difference. In First Corinthians 11, there's 16 verses dedicated to that subject. Very, very well put out. You, you, it's, you know what you know what Paul's talking about. Okay, in this particular uh, verse it's a phrase it's kind of like a, a passing phrase that paul puts forward all right so another clue we can maybe look at here is that he further admonishes men that they should pray without wrath and doubting all right so why these two things why did he say that of all things he could have listed why wrath and doubting well this is my thoughts on it and i would i would invite your feedback so let's look at the at the wrath part i believe it is safe to say That in general, it is more of a besetting sin for men to deal with anger and wrath than it is women. That's been my general observation. Now, it's not—that's a very broad brush, but I'd say, generally speaking, that's probably the case. All right. Did you ever try to pray mad? How'd that work for you? It it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You may as well—you may as well forget it. Um, it, it, You're—you're not in the frame of mind to pray. And God's not really interested in listening to you because if you're mad about something, uh odds are that's the only thing you can think about. Okay? So here again I think it's a specific Paul is specifically talking to men, and he said, Be, be careful about your attitude when you when you come in prayer. Lay aside wrath. How about doubting? This Greek word here is where we get our word dialogue. Okay? I think the NIV, if I remember right. Translates it disputing, so it would say without wrath and disputing. So there's a couple different things we could think about here. Um, indeed, indeed, it maybe is, you know, and I'm just, I'm just throwing this out for your consideration. But it is perhaps again more of a besetting uh, sin, would you say it that way, for men to have a doubtful mind. In other words, we're people that want to fix things ourselves, and we want to take things into our own hands and kind of control the thing. And so perhaps we pray more as a um, this is something I should do. And so hey God, you know, could you help me out here? But you know what, I'll I'll go out and, and we'll try this thing together. You know, um, maybe a bit of a maybe a bit of a doubtful mind. Okay. If you take and and you um, and you translate it disputing, again we come back to the mad part. Have you ever tried to pray to God when you're in a dispute or you have ill will towards your brother or sister? Again, how did that go for you? Uh, probably not so well. So when I tie this, this verse together, I think what Paul is driving at is that men, these are things you have to think about. You have to think about the holiness in your life. You have to think about your frame of mind. You have to think about your relationship with your brother. That is your besetting sins that will haunt you and will not aid you when you go, you come before God in prayer. All right. Now let's go to verse nine and 10. He says, in like manner also. So it seems like he's connecting verse eight with verse nine and 10 when he says, in like manner also. So the question is, how is modestly dressed women that eschew, uh, broided hair, gold, pearls, and costly array, how is that an asset and imperative to prayer, which is our subject, and sound doctrine, which is the overriding theme of the book? How, how does this fit together? Well, once again, it's no secret, I don't think, that it is a woman's weakness to doll herself up. I think that's I think that's a pretty fair a pretty fair assumption to uh, to make. I, w- I would say that wearing inappropriate clothing that flaunts the body is a serious temptation for men to have unholy thoughts. It, am I correct in saying that? I, I would say that's very likely. Okay. So you can see here why this, this thing of dressing modestly and godly ties in with the whole thing of holy hands of men in prayer. So, so let's, let's, let's look at this a little bit more. If men who inherently, just by our nature, have to daily guard our eyes and hearts to maintain purity and holiness in our thought life and otherwise, to have an effective prayer, is it not said when they come to the assembly of the believers that they have that right in their midst? That's said, and it happens. Thank God that I'm an assembly of believers this morning that does not believe in that. I want to affirm you ladies that dress modestly. Thank you for that. We need that. Ladies, you do not know how your appearance has the potential to hinder the prayers of men. You don't understand that completely. It has very grave potential to make the hands of your men unholy. End of story. So back to the question. Why do we put so much emphasis literally on modestly dressed women and we look at verse 8 more metaphorically? Well, personally, as I pointed out earlier, I'm inclined to believe That verse 8 is more metaphorical just because we have verses in other parts of the Bible that speak somewhat in the same language that are obviously metaphorical. Such as David, when he says that he looks up, he lifts his eyes to the hills from whence comes his help. Do you suppose that David said, now if you want to know where your help is from, now you look to the hills. We get it. It was metaphorical. Okay. Another important question, just because there's no verse that I know of, and if there is one, let, let me know, but I do not believe there is any specific verse in the New Testament that pointedly directs men to dress modestly. Is there one? I don't think there is. I don't think there is. But there's at least two or three that specifically tell women to dress this way, specifically, but not men. Now, would it be right for me to say, look, no verse for men in here about that. So guess what? When it turns 85 degrees in human next summer, I, off comes my shirt. But nope, my, my wife's got to wear a cape dress. No sense at all. That doesn't make sense. Okay, so, you, so follow my line of thought here. Is Paul not just simply pointing out the besetting sins of both genders? I, I wonder if he's not. Now, there's another important thing to consider here with these two verses, or three verses. It is very possible for a man to physically raise his hands in prayer, do this physically, and yet his heart is extremely unholy. You can do this. You, you can do that. You can't see my heart, but you can see my hands, and so I I've, have fulfill my duty. Is God pleased with that? You know the answer to that. God is not pleased with that. Now, let's, uh, let's think about it in the other way. It is nearly impossible to dress godly or immodestly and insist that you are modest. I, I mean, it's it's kind of hard to do. You're either modest or you're immodest, one of the two. People try to do it, granted, but ultimately it's something like the story with the emperor, the emperor with no clothes. After a while, somebody says, hey, that simply doesn't cut it. I will grant you, it is possible to dress modestly and have a heart that is not right with God as well. I will grant you that. However, I would also say, I would venture to guess that that does not happen very often. Not very often. Generally what a person wears is a very strong indicator of his heart. Generally speaking. Not always, but generally. It is of great interest to me that when pe- when people get serious about their walk with God, generally speaking, modesty is one of the first issues addressed. And when they lose interest with God, generally modesty is one of the first things that disappear. Generally speaking. I sp- again, I speak with a broad brush, but generally speaking. There's another thing here that might help us in our search for truth, and that is when we go back to verse 1 and we look at the word... Prayer. That word prayer there, as I pointed out before, is in verse 1 where the verse is not limited just to men. That is all believers. Whereas in verse 8, it is speaking specifically to men. So I think there, there's a strong um, indication that um, Paul is probably more concerned about the holiness of the hands, in verse 8, than he is about the hands particularly being raised in a, in a physical way. Another clue that uh, that we have here, and this goes to the Strong's Dictionary once more, what does the word lifting up mean? In, Strong's tells me that the word lifting up can be, u- can be used literally or figuratively, Okay. So it means to exalt, to poise, to lift up, okay? But in parentheses, he says, it can be used literally or figuratively. So, so what is it here? Is it literal? Is it figurative? Well, how is it used in other places in the New Testament? I'd like to just point out a few where it's used figuratively. In the context of the events that were leading up to the end times when Jesus is talking to his disciples in Luke 21, It says, And when these things come to pass, then lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. That lift up there is the same word that's translated lifting up here in our text this morning. Okay, so again, Jesus was not saying, you know, physically, you know, do this number. I mean, we can, but obviously he's saying be in an attitude of watching for the Lord's return. And in the context of the prophecy that Jesus had about Judas' betrayal in John 13, he goes like this. He says, I speak not of you all, I know whom I have chosen, and that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Again, Judas didn't literally lift up his heel and kick Jesus. It, that didn't happen literally. But we know what it meant. It's, it's a figurative way of speaking. Many times the word lifted up is used in the New Testament. It's used about 20 times. It's used in the in the context where it says somebody lifted up their eyes or they lifted up their voice. And you could even say that's somewhat figurative. I mean, that means they shouted or they came to attention, one of the two. To be fair, there are a few biblical examples where people physically lifted their hands in prayer very literally. And I want to just point them out here quickly too. First of all, I would like to just say that as far as I, as far as I could research, the Old Testament posture, uh, of standing and raising a one's hands in prayer was not completely uncommon. In other words, the, the people that Paul was addressing here would have known, would have known why he said that. Cause it was a very, I don't know if I should say very common, it was not at all uncommon. Solomon did it at the temple dedication. If you remember that, when he sacrificed those thousands of animals, it said he stood by the altar, and I think it even says he lifted his hands. I believe it says it it that way. In John 17, it says that when Jesus prayed, it says that he lifted up his eyes to heaven. And um, so perhaps he was standing, perhaps he raised his hands. We don't necessarily know that, but it does say he lifted up his eyes. And on the Mount of Transfiguration... You could possibly deduct that Jesus was praying here in a standing position as well, although there's no mention of outstretched or upraised hands necessarily. And at the ascension, it says that right before he was taken up, Jesus lifted his hands and blessed the disciples. And there I believe it was probably more of a, of a signal of who he was blessing perhaps. Probably our best example of somebody who stood in prayer is the Pharisee and the publican in Luke 18. Both men went to public worship. The Pharisee and the publican both went to the temple to pray, it says. But it gives commentary on both men. It says, the Pharisee stood and prayed with himself. And because of his proud heart, it says, the man went down to his house and it didn't do a thing for him. The publican, on the other hand, it says, standing afar off, would not so much as lift up his eyes into heaven, but smote his breath, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner." That man, it says, went down to his house justified. Who really lifted up holy hands in that situation? Well, I'm going to conclude this. We could spend a lot of time looking at different prayer postures, okay? But I will tell you that in the biblical accounts that we have, by far and away, kneeling or bowing to the ground is the most common posture given when we come across accounts of people literally praying in the New Testament and in the Old. Paul, even though he gives this instruction here in this particular um, letter to Timothy, he says in Ephesians 3.14, For this cause I bow my knees. And what did John the Revelator do whenever he saw Jesus? He cast himself to the ground. What did, what did the prophets do when they encountered um, uh, the Lord? They cast themselves to the ground. And, and we can look through Acts. We, we have accounts of Peter, Paul, different people, where it specifically says they knelt to the ground and prayed. Okay, so that's just, that seems to be the overriding posture that we have uh, portrayed in the New Testament. However, again, in all fairness, it would be dishonest to say that there is no historical record of people very physically raising their hands in prayer. Uh, those of you that are familiar with David Bersow and the, the uh, research he has done on the church between the time of the apostles and the Council of Nicaea, which is about a 200-year span, documents... Uh, Writings of, of those people that, that would make mention of worship services where that practice was indeed literally observed. And it's my understanding that in, in the Eastern Orthodox churches and Jewish synagogues today, this would not be an uncommon practice. So I would have to deduct that there's certainly nothing wrong with it, and in, in its place it probably can be very proper. I did find it interesting, though, that as as I was reading some of what Tertullian has to say about this, and he was one of those people that lived in that in that time period that I referred to as, um, they kind of call it the Antinocyan Fathers, I guess. He says this, he says, make sure when you lift your hands that you don't do it too haughtily. In other words, he, he was concerned that even when we practice this, that you don't get too carried away with it because he, he says... Um, uh, there's much more can be said for the posture of kneeling. He puts it that way. So that's, that was Tertullian's uh, take on it. I also mentioned um, how other places in the scripture, uh, prayer and the way we should pray is indeed used very metaphorically, such as when David says, I will lift my eyes into the hills from which comes my help. Uh, Jesus also said, well, now when you pray, uh, go into your closet." Uh so does that mean we should have prayer closets along the wall here um, you know that we can all tuck ourselves in whenever we pray but we get we get that Jesus was was um, teaching about a specific thing there and and so we understand that um, so anyway my point is that uh hyperbole and symbolism is not uncommon whenever uh we look at the Bible and uh consider what it talks about as far as prayer posture and I want to say this next point as kindly as possible, but um, and please hear me, this is not finger pointing in any way. But um, it has been my observation: it is not uncommon, in my observation, that many people, when they are in the process of abandoning what I believe is clear biblical teaching, and I'm talking about clear biblical teaching i.e. such things as teaching on um, divorce and remarriage. I'm talking about cardinal, high-stakes teaching here, okay? Um, Those types of things. And when there seems to be a general encroaching of worldliness upon a group of people or a church, okay? In that instance, it is not uncommon for these types of people to begin to look for a counterfeit to fill the void. That's, that's what I believe. In that process, they will pick up a verse like this and say, ah, I got it. Let's lift our hands. That makes us holier. That makes us, that makes us look like we're doing something. Now, and I say that, I say that, remember I said I want to say that kindly and I don't wish to point fingers because I believe there are people that perhaps practice that literally that I do not want to in any way um, question their Christianity. I want to be clear about that. But my point is, it seems like there seems to be a correlation between happy clappy, as we run from what we know to be clear biblical teaching, for the either the periphery or even outside the periphery of what God's words teaches. There seems to be a strong correlation with that. I think it's probably fits into the form of godliness but denying the power. I will also say this, in our in our Mennonite circles, coming right down here to us today, there's a couple things that have happened in our past that have uh has has um, what's the word I'm looking for? It has perhaps uh made us cautious about such things. In the Great Awakening of the mid-1700s, there was a hullabaloo in the Mennonite churches, and there was a marked parting of ways. And the people that were into the revivalistic movement of that day did exactly what I said in my last point. They abandoned some very clear scriptural teachings, and what followed was a very emotional, uh, outward expression of uh, Christianity. Needless to say... Nobody was impressed. That's, that stayed with the original group. Okay, that's just that's just saying it the way it is. And and let's be honest enough to say that perhaps we have reacted to that sort of thing to a point that is not healthy as well. I think um, I think because of some of these instances, and if you come even closer home to the charismatic movement of the mid mid part of the last century, the same thing happened. As there was a departure from clear teaching of the word, there was an embracing of a lot of emotional outward activity to make up the void, I believe. I did some research in the uh, Mennonite Encyclopedia, too, just to see what I could come up with there as far as church services, uh, how we did things way back when. And as far back as the record goes that I could, that I could quickly tell... We have record of kneeling as the preferred method of prayer posture in our worship services. There was only one one uh, anomaly to this that I could find, and that is some of the Anabaptist churches in Holland uh, did have a, tr- a tradition for a while where in at least one of their prayers, all the men would stand and all the ladies would remain seated. And I have no doubt that perhaps was a... Um, was a an attempt to maybe bring some um, some literal observance to this this verse perhaps. I don't know what the what the reason behind that was, but that that would be a guess perhaps. Um I also found that there was a um for a period of time in Europe and it and it largely has died out now. It was the common practice when when um people would come to church and and go into their pews that they would either sit and, and pray, obviously pray, silently of course, or they would stand for a period of time and they would pray and then they would sit. And so that was kind of the first order of business when you came to church is that you would have your own personal prayer in public silently. It's just, I don't know whether that, you know, ties into this or not, but just something I found, uh, very, very in- interesting. So in, to conclude this and wrap this up. I said that once before, didn't I? Now, I mean it this time. So, is is it wrong to lift one's hair, hair, hands? Yeah, try hair once. Um, Is it wrong to lift your hands physically when one prays? I think the answer is no. There's nothing inherently wrong with it. I don't think so. Is it imperative? My conclusion is not necessarily. Is holiness necessary? Absolutely. Very necessary. In fact, if you're here and you have stained hearts this morning, you may as well not even bother to get down to pray when I call for that. You may as well just remain sitting and think about what you're going to do next week. Because your prayer will not get any any higher than the ceiling. End of story. I'm going to paraphrase what Paul says whenever he addressed in two chapters... The, the thing of tongues. He wrapped it up like this. He said, wherefore brethren covet to prophesy and forbid not to speak in tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. I'm going to paraphrase that. Wherefore brothers covet sound doctrine and pray in holiness and forbid not the lifting of the hands. However, let all things be done decently and in order.